Chapter 17, I will be reading Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. <clears throat> Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, historical word to our hearts and our souls and our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your grace, by your mercy, let us resignate with what drove Paul and Silas and Timothy and the others. Let us taste of it and let us see it worked out in our lives, in our culture, in our families in our conduct, to the glory of your holy name. Amen, and amen, and amen. As we look 
at this passage and we see Paul and Silas and the missionary team and what they had to endure, what they chose to endure, it poses a few questions to each and every one of us who claim the name of Christ is our Savior, and that is, how are you living? Does the gospel of Jesus impact your choices in life? Does it drive you to an intimate, ongoing relationship with your Lord and Savior who is ascended on high and dwells within you by the Holy Spirit? Does that show itself in your conversations in life? In the way you handle your money? In your living as an outsider and an alien in this world, in America, in California, in this culture. What we have before us this morning is essentially a working out of what Jesus meant when he said, you must take up your cross to follow me. You must lose your life in this world to find eternal life. And so as we look at this historical account, we'll see it. That exactly what Jesus said playing out in Paul and Silas' life and in the Thessalonians and in the Bereans. So just get the large picture where we've been and where this goes very briefly and quickly. Paul and Silas, remember, they got off the ship to go to Macedonia, they walked 10 miles to the city of Philippi and they preached the gospel and preached the gospel. And because of the gospel then, they were apprehended, they were beaten brutally by the authorities and what they did was illegal and they find themselves bleeding and in pain and with metal cuffs around their ankles at midnight. And what did they do? They sang. They sang words, hymns, about the gospel, about their Savior. They sang psalms. They sang theology joyfully in that context. And then, after being released there from the authorities in Philippi, they left Luke there to help this new church as a, as a pastor and they went a hundred miles on foot to the next city of Thessalonica and they go into the Jewish synagogue for three straight Saturdays and they're there for probably five, six, seven, eight weeks in Thessalonica until the hatred of those who opposed the gospel of Jesus got so bad that Paul and Silas had to get out of town and they go 40, 45 miles to the next town. Okay, just I want to pause there for a moment as we look at what Luke tells us here. Thessalonica, first, what happens and they have to flee. Because that's Luke's story of it, which is true. 
But just a few months later, literally, not years, just a few months later, when Paul was up in Greece, he wrote a letter to that new church in Thessalonica. And he said this about his initial coming, which we read about in chapter 17 of Acts. He says this to them in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God not to quit. That's what he means. Boldness in our God to declare to you in Thessalonica, the gospel of our God in the midst of much conflict. And so they were chased out of Thessalonica and they go to Berea and again within a couple weeks, much opposition, much conflict, which forced Paul to get out of town and he sells up to Greece. So, what are we willing to sacrifice for Jesus' eternal mercy and love to us who are Christians? You know, over the last few years, I, I've read numbers of articles by pastors and others about a phenomenon within the evangelical community which essentially says that the, the statistics that a large percentage of evangelical Christians cannot even choose the Lord's day, that one main gathering of the saints together for worship, they can't even choose that over kids' sports. When the godless world says, choose you this day, Christ, which is never separated from his community, his community, church on Sunday morning, or kids' sports, many professing Christians' feet are announcing, we choose sports. And you think about it, there are thousands in this country of devoted religious Jews who, if they do not embrace Christ, they will perish in judgment. And yet, because of their seriousness in their religion and adherence to the Ten Commandments, and particularly the commandment of the Sabbath, many of them have foregone, refused, have lost money making because the promotion and the job would have required them to work between sundown on Friday and sundown on Saturday. And we as evangelical Christians, some like the 24-hour, and Christians are freed to do that. We're only talking about a two-hour to three-hour block of time, one day a week for the corporate gathering of worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in droves, many professing Christians are announcing what they really worship. The challenges of the world, which will get worse and worse in all kinds of areas, 
The challenges of the world with their godless, Christless, church-hating agendas on Sunday mornings, they actually are a clarifying gift from God. Christians, stand out. It's an opportunity to preach to our kids, not just with words, but with actions. The gospel penetrating the hearts of those of us who are being saved, it is meant to cause conflict with the culture, with the world. In verse 6, of our passage, those who hated the gospel shouted out before the government officials of the city. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here. We are called out of darkness into light in order to shine brightly, which by definition will mean stick out as sore thumbs to the neighbors, to the world, to the culture. We live in a mission field today of vastly different worldviews from the biblical worldview, from the gospel worldview. The gospel of Jesus is Upsetting people's lives. That's what these men who have turned the world upside down means. It's upsetting because the gospel is confronting. It's angering to every one of us, all of us who are born into sin and when we are in our natural sinful state, to the extent we grasp what it is saying, we are upset by it. Because ever since the fall of humanity into sin, all people have been born into a state of rebellion against the Creator, and we live our lives and we die in that state. Unless during this life, we are turned upside down by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And therefore the gospel and the people that the gospel creates, it's called the church of Jesus. The gospel and the people that Jesus is saving, they ought to be upsetting to those on the outside. Whether they are religious, like we see in our passage with the religious Jews, who couldn't stand it, and they had to get violent and even pursue Paul and Silas and this because they hated the message so much. They start doing it in Berea. That's like walking from here to Disneyland and a little bit further on foot to go there to make sure you stir up the crowds to stop these Christians from preaching, or whether it's the non-religious, the pagans, which we see in verses 8 and 9, the city authority says, yes, we're disturbed about that, and they arrest them, and they demand a bell 
money from them. And in verse 13 we read, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, there they go. I would not have said what I'm going to say 10 years ago. Not because it wasn't true 10 years ago, but I didn't get it 10 years ago. But it's so clear today. And that is, right now, we in our country, we have come full circle back to the godless paganism of the first century. The dominant worldview of the Roman Empire that they are preaching to constantly was not at all Judeo-Christian. And today, the West and America is no longer Judeo-Christian. But instead, this, this, our God, the God is dead. The no truth, but your personal truth. This, that mentality is dominant. The, the mentality that loves to kill babies in the womb, the mentality that loves the idea of homosexual activity and same-sex marriage, the, the worldview that says, yes, no matter your biology, we reject that in science. If you think you're male, you're male, even though you're biologically female. That's where we're at. They don't believe in holiness, nor do they believe in the judgment to come. And therefore, those who are gripped by the spirit of this age feel and think they have no need to be saved from anything. So if you preach that they need to be saved from God, from God's wrath, well then you turn their world upside down and they get angry. That's what we read in our text. It's true today. So here's the question we should pose to Paul. Then why do you live the gospel, Paul, if that's the world you live in? Why do you go and preach this message when you know the majority of those who will hear it will not respond positively, but will respond negatively to you? Paul, you know that the vast majority of your fellow Jews in those synagogues will end up hating you. And they might cause you to be physically accosted, if not killed. So why, Paul? Why do you continue to go first into the synagogues? His answer is twofold. First, obedience to Christ. Obedience to my Savior Jesus who is very much alive and seated on the throne. That's why I do it. And his second answer is because Paul knows that some of those fellow Jews in the synagogue, some of them, while he's preaching the gospel, they'll hear the gospel and Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, will act and call some of them to faith in Christ. And thus they will be eternally, joyfully saved to the glory of God. 
That's his answer. I could read for the next hour text from Jesus in the Gospels and Paul in his letters. But I'm just going to read one concise one right now that where Paul is so clear on what I just said would be his answer. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. He's the power of God. He's the wisdom of God to them. Let's read it again. We preach in Thessalonica, in the synagogue, Christ crucified. And with there, there's some non-Jews who are God-fearers and like the God of the Old Testament and the Bible, and they go to synagogue services. We preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. That's why they get so angry. And to the Non-Jews, the Gentiles, it's foolishness to them. And when we go to the marketplaces, foolishness. Christ, on a death chamber? That's your message? Oh, yeah. That's what we preach. But to those in the synagogue, to those outside the synagogue that we preach it to, to those among them, who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, Paul would say, suffering and persecution and ridicule, being ostracized, must be endured for Christ's sake. Because Paul understood the whole gospel. He grasped the power of God in the gospel being proclaimed. That's why he proclaimed it. He trusted, in other words, that God would save his chosen people. In Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, in Corinth. Paul knew, because he had the gospel right, he knew God had his elect persons in those towns. And not only that, therefore, Paul knew, as I go there, I will get to experience the joy of discovering who those elect are while I preach the gospel to them. And look at verse 4. And so, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few, but many, of the leading women. There they are. God's elect. 
coming out of those synagogue meetings. Then he goes to Berea. Look at verse 12. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well. There's God's elect. Again, <clears throat> I'm not reading anything. It's not really there in the gospel into this passage. So what I mean is, again, four to six months later, Paul wrote to the church in the city of Thessalonica, right here. Listen to what he says. Listen to Paul's understanding of how salvation works. He says this in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. For we know, here's Paul's knowledge again, we know, brothers, that means the Christians there, and not only that, now he's, gonna, he's got another term for them. We know, brothers, loved by God. He doesn't mean God loves everybody there. Hey, we know God's special love for you is what he's saying to these fellow Christians. For we know, brothers, loved by God. Here it is. What do you know, Paul? We know that God has chosen you. Ek lagain. You can hear the word elect there. He's elected you. Okay. How do you know, Paul? He tells them how he knows. He's clear. It's right there. That's the next word. Because. Okay? When you got a because, you say, what came before that? He's arguing for what he just said. He's given the reason for what he says. We know, Thessalonian Christians, that God has chosen you. There it is, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but it came to you also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He doesn't mean we were convicted of the truth as preachers of the gospel. It's not what he's saying. He says the Holy Spirit's power came upon you and convicted you of its truth and you were changed. So just sit there. Think about it now. With Acts 17 in our passage, he goes to the synagogue for three straight Saturdays for hours on end. And what happens at the end of this is this. Some, let's just start with, forget about the non-Jews. Just go with the Jews. Some of those Jews from the synagogue believed and were saved. And the others weren't. So here's the question. What's the difference between them, the believers, and the many other fellow members of that synagogue who did not believe but instead got very angry and persecuted Paul and Silas? Paul just told us what the difference is in 1 Thessalonians 1. The difference was the Holy Spirit. 
Both groups heard the gospel. But the elect, the chosen, that's what Paul says. I know you're chosen because God also worked in power by the Holy Spirit convicting you of the truth of the gospel. That's what he says. For we know, brothers, who are loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's Paul's understanding of God saving people. That's understanding was key to driving the way he lived and his willingness to suffer temporarily in this life for the gospel. See, for Paul and everyone else in the world, he knows that he deserved eternal damnation. He knows that on Judgment Day, what he deserves is what we all deserve is God's perfect, holy wrath. Paul, remember, was just like these Jews we read about in chapter 17. Even worse, he hated the gospel of Jesus more than they did and persecuted the church of God more than anybody. That's what he did. Until he was called. When Jesus said to him, Paul, come. Jesus, by the call, enabled him to come. And he was changed. See, Paul's understanding of God's work in salvation is that he knew that now, as he looks back, Jesus miraculously, by God's power and the Holy Spirit, caused me to be convicted of the gospel. That was his miraculous call that brought me to faith. And he knows he called me because he predestined for me Sometime in my mortal life, in his early 30s or late 20s, to be called. And he predestined me because from before he ever created the universe, he chose me. You know the text. I didn't make that up. This is how Paul says it. For those whom he foreknew. It doesn't mean, oh, I know who you are or what you will do. It's in the Bible to know is an intimate knowing. Adam knew his wifey. God knew Abraham. That's actually the word in Hebrew. But we translate it chose because that's clearly what it means. God knows every human being, but if he knows you this way, <laughs> That's how you come to know God, or rather to be known.
God, for whom he foreknew, chose those he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in humanity. Why? In order that his Son might be the firstborn, meaning the resurrected human being. Firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, every single one of them, he justifies. Why? Because every one of them come to faith in Christ, and you're justified by faith. And every one of them that he justified, got to hear this as we continue to suffer in this life, he glorified. That's future, and it's just as sure. Is your coming to Christ. And that coming to Christ is just as sure as his choosing you from the foundation of the world. That's what drove him. That's what drove him as you read Paul in 1 Corinthians, you read him in 2 Corinthians. This was not an issue just of 21st century American evangelicalism. There were preachers already prostituting the gospel in order to get followers because they were ashamed of the gospel. The gospel Paul preached everywhere, he would say it clearly, is that the wrath of God is coming against all you nice people. It's not coming against you because of your niceness. It's coming against you because you were guilty. And the cross of Jesus is the only way to be saved from the coming wrath. See, it's that message that got Paul so angry as a Pharisee that he had to stamp it out. And it's the same message that got these Jews in Thessalonica and in Berea so angry. And it is the same message, if it's preached clearly, that gets people angry in our culture today. And that Paul clearly preached that in Thessalonica. Again, I turn to his letter he writes a few months later. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He writes to these new Christians, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. So clearly, you know, Luke doesn't give us everything, but Paul gave them the whole ball of wax. And not only was Jesus raised and ascended, He's coming back to raise you physically from the dead. Now, but listen to this. Whom he raised from the dead. You're waiting for him to come. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They didn't like read that. Say, wrath? I never heard wrath. What's that about? If you go to many, many evangelical churches today, there are ten thousands of Christians out there who are really unpleased that you would even say such a thing. They're taught wrongly. The gospel has been prostituted. They will tell you, God does not send people to hell. 
He's not angry. What Bible are they reading? This is the gospel. This is part of their joy. But it's not the whole joy. Merely being delivered from what you deserve. And that is horrible. But salvation in Christ at its core is also a salvation unto an intimate communion with God the Creator. It is joy in who He is to every, every repenting sinner who comes to faith in Christ. It is a joy who He is to us as the elect, the adopted the redeemed sons and daughters of God. He writes this to the Thessalonians a few months later. You became imitators of us and of Jesus. Why? What do I mean? Because you received the word in the midst of much affliction. Didn't you, Jason? And all you other Christians that got dragged before the authorities. Yes, they did. But watch this. Receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That, that's why Paul would later write in, in Philippians 3.8, I, Paul, count everything that I have attained in my life before I came to Christ. I count everything as loss because of something because of the surpassing worth of knowing, personally knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is for His sake. I've, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as garbage in comparison in order that I may gain Christ. That on that day I may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness that comes through my trust in my Jesus in His life alone. It is that personal relationship with Jesus that caused Paul be willing to suffer for Christ. That's what drove him to not quit after being beaten and jailed in Philippi. Going to the next town because by his providence I'm still alive. And then getting chased out of there to go to the next town. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem a few years later. The Holy Spirit was communicating through average saints in every town. And he says, I'm going. Not only if I just get jailed, but I'm willing to die for Jesus in Jerusalem if need be. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. A sword of division. A division of what one worships. In this world, a division of worldviews 
And therefore the gospel, that gospel, preaching Christ, causes conflict. It turns the culture upside down. And it angers many. But that is why Paul, who refused to adulterate the gospel, but to preach Christ crucified, and to keep it clear about you need to be saved from the wrath of God because you are a sinner. And there is no good works, religiosity, anything you do, God provided His sacrificial lamb for you, and He is Christ Jesus. That's where God's anger towards you was poured out. And the only way that is yours is if you embrace Him. Tell us more philosophical theology. Well, he will with more mature, he says in 1 Corinthians. But as he said to the Corinthians, because they, just, they did not mature very fast, he said, I determined on purpose to know nothing among you except Christ butchered on a cross. Because it took you a while to get it. He'll go on to deeper stuff, he said. But get the gospel. clear. That's why he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes it. And they cannot believe it unless they hear it. And to hear the gospel is not just to hear, Jesus loves you. Okay, great. That's, I love him loving me. I love me too. And that is his pattern. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first. Then to the Greek. It's his pattern throughout his ministry to go to the Jews. Look at verse 1. Chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, now, 20 years ago, this Jesus from Nazareth is that Messiah. When the gospel is clearly laid out, a line in the sand is drawn and people cannot remain neutral. Jesus was clear. If you are not with me, you already are standing in a place that is against me. And that's what we read. But some of the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring Paul and Silas out to the crowd. But they couldn't find Paul and Silas. These unbelieving Jews were so angry, they pursued them to the next town to cause trouble.
Now, let's notice in our passage the content of the gospel, that it focuses on the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. For three Saturdays in a row, Paul, the word is, reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures. That's all day long. And what that reason means, he was having dialogue with them over the Scriptures. He was fielding questions, tough questions, about the things that he's saying. He explained to them and gave evidence not from testimonies of Jesus' resurrection at that point. Evidence from the Old Testament. The Scriptures. That the Messiah that is promised in the Old Testament, it's clear that He must suffer, be killed, and rise from the dead. And then He would say, this Jesus, 20 years ago, in Israel, in Galilee, in Judea, in Jerusalem, who was crucified, that Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, is the Messiah. Verse 2 says, Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. So he took the Old Testament to show what it taught. Particularly that the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one, must suffer. The son of David, in other words, must suffer and die. Who knows what he did? But if you just read throughout all of Paul's letters, he's constantly quoting or paraphrasing and or alluding to Old Testament text. But maybe he took them to Psalm 22 and just read it slowly because they had all day. It was Sabbath. They weren't going to a baseball game. So, there he is, going to Psalm 22, and laid out there is crucifixion. Hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. And then, he most likely takes him to Isaiah 53, which is clearly a messianic passage of the king, the son of David, the son of Jesse, who is to come. And he says, do you see there where it says the Messiah will be despised and forsaken by men? Yeah, by the Jews and the Sanhedrin and Pilate and the Roman government. There it is. He will be pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The Lord, Yahweh, has laid on Him the <coughs> iniquities, the sins of all of us. Maybe he, he, he pauses there and spends a couple hours in the book of the law the whole sacrificial system showing again and again about the day of atonement and the scapegoat and laying the hands on it and the sins go away. But we got to do it every year again and again as God is showing a picture of His Messiah who would come, a human being, and He will be the sacrifice. And then He goes on in Isaiah 53, quoting, He was cut off. Out of the land of the living. He was stricken 
for the transgression of my people. And yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him, to crucify Him. The Lord, Yahweh, has put the Messiah to grief. And then Paul quotes the next line. And He, that Messiah, shall divide the spoil with the strong because He poured out His soul to death. Paul would say, how in the world will he be able to be victorious if he was killed? Because he was raised. It's right there. And he ends with, yet he bore the sin. Not an animal, but Jesus of Nazareth bore the sin of many. And right now he is alive and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was killed. He was raised. Maybe he took him to Psalm 16 as he has before in the book of Acts. Saying through David, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David rotted in the grave, but his son was raised on the third day. And on and on and on and on Paul goes because he bled the written word of God. And then finally, when it therefore comes, not just to those who are yet to come to Christ, but will be called to faith in Christ, this is our initiation into Christ. But what we see here next is to be the ongoing pattern of our lives. And that is this. When it comes to openness to the truth, to the Scripture, according to Luke, I think that's why he says it the way he does, we should always seek to be like the Jews in Berea and not like the Jews in Thessalonica. Verses 10 and 12. 10 to 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily in order to see if what these guys are teaching is true. And now watch this. Many of them. It's a stark contrast from what Luke said about Thessalonica. About the synagogue Jews. Some of them. Here, because of the work of the Spirit causing them to be open. 
eager. Going to the Scripture, not with a, I don't want you to mess around with my sexual morals or my self-righteousness. Is what these men are saying true about the Scripture? And that's how they went about it. And so here he doesn't say some. He says many of these Jews, therefore, believed. With not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. That's the proper saving response to the gospel. First, one's mental attention is really drawn to what's being said. Their minds here, they're active. They're, they're not gullible. Okay, that sounds good. Want a good life? They received the word with eagerness, meaning they did it with an open mind. Maybe what you're saying is true. Let's look. It would change my whole world and my life. The eagerness came at its core from if what these men are saying, it's the greatest news I've ever heard. Now, we don't know if it's true, but if it is, let's go to the Scripture. And that's what led them to critical thinking. I don't mean critical and criticizing. Critical thinking. Thinking clearly about the text of Scripture. As Luke says, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Faith in Jesus is never a matter of closing your eyes or closing your mind and just leaping into the dark. I guess I'll just believe. It is based upon the revelation of God Himself that He has given to us concerning His Son. And that revelation comes like this. First, it is the written Word of God that was written before Jesus was ever born. That's where He's revealed Himself. Then, secondly, He's revealed Himself in Jesus, in His humanity, in His words and ministry given to us in the Gospels and in His historical work on the cross He demonstrated Himself that is Almighty God, and in His resurrection. And then it's revealed in the eyewitness testimonies of many disciples and the apostles who ate with Him and were taught by Him after His resurrection. And thus, through the apostles' teaching of the meaning of all this. That's where God has revealed Himself. So for every one of us in here who are Christians, that is our ongoing power to walk with Jesus. To walk confidently. To walk boldly in a world and a culture that hates Jesus.
and hates the message of the cross. The power to go to the next city after being beaten and jailed comes from the truth dwelling in our hearts, not merely on the page. Comes from the truth dwelling in our hearts as we prayerfully hang out with and commune with the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit. As we before the Lord and for, before the throne room of heaven, He's ever present because of the Spirit. We are to constantly examine our hearts and our lives. We are to ask the questions in our own lives constantly. Every genuine Christian throughout the millennia are to live asking, are we becoming more worldly? Do we worship money more than we worship Jesus? Do we worship Sunday morning kids sports more than we worship Jesus? Do we worship entertainment more than we desire communion with the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus? Are we walking closely with Jesus? Or are we growing cold toward Him? As I'm closing now, I'm going to read a short little letter that our Lord Jesus dictated to us, the church, after His resurrection and ascension. He dictated it to his apostle, John. And Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. And so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I, Jesus, counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. He is given in this book. It is the book. It is the words. Buy it from me. He says, goes on to say, that you would buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And that you would buy from me salve in order to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
And then he says these precious words, not to the world, to the church. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline. So be zealous and repent. And so I say, let us go on turning up the heat of our devotion and love for our Lord Jesus by constantly and prayerfully examining and internalizing the written word of God daily. The voice of the Lord is the Bible. And our Lord Jesus finally then says this to us in light of that. And he says this to his church, not to the world. Behold, I, Jesus, stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, let's take that into the communion table this morning in our lives and examine our hearts. We're all sinners. And say, oh Lord, Yes, ignite that. And I want to buy from you the fire of passion to be with you for your word. As we hold the cup and we hold the bread and wait and pray over them together as those of us who are baptized. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your ever abiding presence with us in the Holy Spirit. For yes, it was better that you be killed and rise and go away and send the Spirit. And so may we encounter you, eat with you and sup with you in our daily lives this week over your precious and holy and glorious gospel. To the glory of your name and to the strength of our souls, I pray. Amen.